0: This is Valor Radio. Valor, strength of mind and spirit that enables a person to face danger with steel-clad resolve and determination in battle or in any other situation. Valor like that displayed by veterans of every branch of the military throughout our community. This radio show, Valor Radio, salutes all of you who have raised your right hands to volunteer and protect and preserve our unique American way of life. Thanks for joining us and your brothers and sisters in uniform for Valor Radio. Here are your hosts, Colonel Paul Simonelli and Captain Steve Momano. And soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coasties, uh, let's see, uh, who did I leave out here, uh, Captain? Guardians. Guardians, yes, thank you very much. Uh, Guardians and the civilians uh, serving by their side. So glad to uh, to have you along with us today. And let's switch to uh, to Florida, sunny FLA, and the Colonel.
1: Well, hello, gentlemen.
0: How's, how goes it, Paul?
1: Hey, all is good.
0: Good. Can you speak up for me nice and loud because uh, we're... Uh, Uh, Got a little low level going on here.
1: All right. Is that better? A little bit. All right. We'll see if we can keep it up there. So uh, we've got a great show today. We're going to be talking about national security policy. And I just want to start first by uh, welcoming back uh, Greg Fontenot, retired Army colonel, author, historian, uh, advisor to generals. <laughs> Greg, are you with us? I am.
2: Uh, still having a little trouble hearing you, though, Paul, but I yeah. am with you.
1: Yeah, you
0: speak up good and loud for us here, Colonel, because you're still All
1: right. low. All right.
0: I've got you wide open at this end.
1: All right, let's see if there's something I can do here. Uh, let me uh, start out by uh, saying uh, just a little intro here. You know, in recent years, <clears throat> Uh, Many national security policy scholars and practitioners have questioned whether deterrence remains a relevant, reliable, and realistic national security concept for the USA in the 21st century. That's a good question. It's a fair question. New threats to American security posed by transnational terrorists, asymmetric military strategies and capabilities and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction by adversaries who see the world in a, a profoundly different way than we do have called into question uh, our reliance on deterrence as a central tenet of our national security strategy uh... some people think we need to move on past deterrence uh... others uh... believe it's still important to us so Uh, We're here to try to sort that out today with Greg Fontenot. Uh, Welcome back, Greg.
2: Glad to be back. I think this is an important topic. And for the record, I believe deterrence remains valid. You have to be serious about it in order to deter anyone. And if you're not, deterrence will fail.
1: So, Greg, starting out uh, for our listeners... Can you uh, summarize in uh, a few sentences? What, what is deterrence when it, we're talking about uh, strategy on a national basis?
2: The, the best example I can give uh, is to start with an analogy and then work up from there. So when you were growing up, this is an analogy. Even you had to grow up, Paul. When you were growing up, you had clear understanding from your parents that there were certain things that if you violated – there would be swift retribution, whether, and, and I'm not asking you to comment, but something would happen if you did the wrong thing and you believed it or you would not have acted that way. Or if you did, didn't did believe them and acted in a way which they did not approve, they would take some kind of action. Am I right?
1: Correct. Absolutely.
2: That is a simple childhood case of deterrence. The Cold War era is the era on which a lot of the deterrence theory was built, and specifically it was built around just what it meant to follow the argument of containment. And you may remember at the end of World War II, George Kennan, a uh, Foreign Service officer, wrote the, quote, long telegram, and he argued for a strategy of containment. Now, when Kennan made that argument, he presumed that containment could be done without particular reference to weapons. In particular, he was concerned about nuclear weapons, and he wanted to have uh, nuclear weapons controlled internationally. And so he, he did not want that to be part of the deterrence strategy. In the end, he was overruled, and what came out was NSC-68, which set the standards for deterrence. And one of the things that it argued is, and I quote, without superior aggregate military strength in being and readily mobilizable, a policy of containment is no more than a policy of bluff. So in short, the, the argument was containment is important, and we, have, we will have limits on what we can do in containment, and Truman tried to articulate that. He was the man uh, for whom NSC-68 was, was written. But in order for the idea of containing Soviet, the Soviet Union's expansionist, uh, uh, expansionist attitude, then you had to have some means of precluding them from doing that. And that was the basis of the talks to include nuclear weapons. Over.
1: Okay. So and I, I don't think anybody would argue about the success of the strategy um, in the Cold War. Uh, it, it seemed to do the trick. Uh, we were facing primarily one enemy uh, that was using surrogates around the world, but that one enemy uh, really controlled the actions of those surrogates and were involved in any decision. So uh, that it, it seemed to work well under those settings. How would you uh, differentiate... Uh, what was going on in the Cold War uh, versus the type of thing that we're facing today?
2: I, I wouldn't characterize it the way that you did. I, I don't think okay. it was as simple as, you know, we only had to deal with the Soviet Union, which is the implication I took from what you said. To me, the problem in the post-Cold War era, in the early 50s, when we thought, you know, peace was going to break out, and to paraphrase uh, Winston Churchill, we're going to enjoy, enjoy the sunny uplands of Beach it didn't happen, because it turned out China wasn't going to be a surrogate for Russia. They were going to take all—the you know, the, the Communist Party of China was going to take all of the mainland and drove the nationalist Chinese into Taiwan. We know that the uh, imperial powers were being pushed back upon in big ways, i.e., Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh. China didn't make Ho Chi Minh happen, and it didn't make Ho Chi Minh successful, nor, nor did uh, the United States intervention Somehow, bolster what was going on in Vietnam. So, the, the threats were far more complex then than we allow now. Now, is the, is the threat more complex now? Uh, I don't think it's any more complex. I mean, counterterrorism or terrorism as a threat uh, has been with us for a very long time. I mean, it's easy for people to confuse January 6th with uh, a serious insurrection, and I'm not convinced it was, but they forget. Puerto Rican nationalists actually getting into the Congress and trying to shoot people up. So you know, terrorism is not new to the problem. It, it scale is new, and the scope is new. That is, these terrorists can can run the whole scope of things from crashing airplanes into buildings to blowing themselves up in crowds. And their their scale is they're worldwide. That is that has changed. What I believe is different. That is characterized the, the, the situation today is at the end of the Cold War, there was a moment where the United States appeared to be a world hegemon. And we might have, with some thoughtful effort, have built a, quote, new world order, uh, as George Herbert Walker Bush said, but we didn't. Instead, we chose to uh, look down our noses at the Soviet Union, the rump of the Soviet Union, the CSIS, as it was originally called, and, uh, and later Russia only, we looked down our noses at, it and we were condescending. Uh, we, we passed an opportunity up. We took a peace dividend. Uh, we walked back from uh, from a notion of aggregate military capability readily mobilizable, and cut the army in half. We brought the United States Navy down. I'm not arguing that that somehow I foresaw that, but we certainly did some things we didn't need to do that contributed to disorder today. So there is no longer. A consensus about foreign policy in the United States. Our tradition, for the better part of 70 years, was politics ends at the shore. We're no longer that way.
1: All right, I want to I want to step back just a little bit, and can we go a little further into defining deterrence? We saw. Oh, I'm hearing some music, so I guess we're going to take a break here. And we'll come back. Uh, We'll continue this discussion with uh, Colonel, retired Greg Fontino, Steve, and uh, Bob in the studio. We'll be back shortly with more of Valor Radio. Rockin at a really, rockin at a really. Yes,
0: and we're doing some fancy schmancy switching here to get uh, everybody on the air from various uh, remote points. And we'll also say hi to Steve, who was in the midst of the confusion when we started the show. We didn't get to. Sorry about that, Steve. More to come here on Valor Radio on WYL.
3: Rockin' You get that itchy twitchy feeling. feeling. You start rockin' and reelin' really. Rockin' and a really. so-
0: You get it all. Savings, selection, security, and satisfaction when you shop at Victor Chevrolet. Now, lease a 2024 Chevy Trax 1 RS front-wheel drive. Just $189 a month for 24 months. Get the cold weather safety and capability of a 2024 Chevy Silverado LT Crew Cab for just $359 a month for 36 months. And then, there's the 24 Chevy Equinox all-wheel drive LT. Only $199 a month for 27 months. $2,500 cash or trade at at closing. Tier 1 credit approval, lessee responsible for repairs and maintenance. Must have lease and household for all these lease deals. Conditions apply. Get details at dealer. All factory rebates, incentives, and discounts waived. Whether you drive a Chevy or not, trust your vehicle to our Chevy Certified Service Department and check out our great used inventory too. Come see how easy it is to do business with us. Together, let's drive at Victor Chevrolet, Route 96 and Victor. Visit VictorChevrolet.com from Avon Feed and Supply, just in time for wet and winter weather, Shod Waterproof Footwear. There's a big selection of DryShod for men and women. Its exclusive insulation breathes and keeps you warm without bulk. And you'll stay dry top to bottom with state-of-the-art waterproofing. While you're at Avon Feed, find everything for your pet. From feeding bowls to toys, leads, collars, beds, food, and treats. The Avon Feed and Supply frequent flyer program feeds your feathered friends in the cold weather. And for every ten bags you buy, you get one free. Avon Feed & Supply has what the big pet chain stores will never have, Tim Cole and his great, knowledgeable staff. And if you think you'll save money at that pet superstore, well, think again. While you're at Avon Feed, don't forget the two-legged pets with River Rat Thousand Island Cheese, once again Nut Butters, East Hill Creamery Products, Monday Mustards, and Rickles Pickles. Open weekdays 9 to 6, Saturday 9 to 4. Avon Feed & Supply, West Main Street, at the bottom of the hill, just west of the circle. Stop, look, and listen. It's getting colder outside. Is your layout a train wreck?
2: Get on board and visit Leafs for model train supplies and get back on track. That's Leafs Sales and Service, your source for model train supplies. Located at 9328 County Road 14 in West Bloomfield. Open Tuesday through Thursday 9 to 6, Friday 9 to 5, and
0: Saturday 9 to 2. Call Leafs today at 585-624-4295.
3: That's 585-624-4295.
0: All Seasons Wine and Spirits, your local and locally owned store, supporting your neighbors and our community. Always save at All Seasons on cases of your favorites. No sales events necessary. All Seasons Wines and Spirits voted best in Livingston County. Two fifty-five
1: Main Street and Avon.
0: Timeout radio show on the WYSL stations. Valor Radio on the WISL stations is brought to you by A.M. Ginsburg & Associates, the law firm of Christopher Johnson, Taylor Heating & Air, call 500-HELP, Hidden Treasure Self Storage in Farmington, MGM Insurance, and the National Warplane Museum. We are back in here on Valor Radio. A little chaotic today. Appreciate uh, your uh, patience. Uh, Steve, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. So, sorry you sorry didn't bother to Not say at that. all. All right, let's go back to the colonel and uh, uh, down in sunny Florida.
1: Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Steve. So, Greg, I just wanted to step back for just a, a minute or two. Uh, when we talk about deterrence, uh, there's some, I think, big concepts that I just want to make sure people understand. Uh, first is something um, that we, I think, was part of deterrence in the Cold War, uh, something we would call strate- uh, strategic ambiguity. And how that played a role in keeping our enemies at bay.
2: Well, that by period. Uh, you know, a good, a good basic source for understanding uh, how those various periods during the Cold War look, in my opinion, is a book by John Lewis Gaddis uh, called "Strategies of Containment," and and he argued. So this get this is going to get to strategic ambiguity, that there were several different uh, strategies of containment. The first was. That that came around in S sixty, C sixty eight, that came out of Korean War in some ways. The Eisenhower Dulles period called the New Look, Kennedy Johnson's period of flexible response, uh, and finally Nixon and Kissinger in the seventies. Not finally, but the penultimate one was Nixon and Kissinger in the seventies, would uh, continued in effect by uh, by both Ford and Carter. Strategic ambiguity in that in, in this instance. Um, Really is, a, is our, po- was our policy about Taiwan because originally we had been supporters of the Chinese, the real China being the government in Taiwan, not the government in Beijing. So my understanding, and I'm, I'm not an expert in diplomatic history, so I could be mistaken about that was uh, the strategic ambiguity notion was applied uh, with respect to Taiwan. You don't particularly want strategic ambiguity with folks who have nuclear weapons. You want them to have a clear understanding of what it is you intend. So coming back to the, and then I'll stop so you can make your point there, but coming back to the basic principle of deterrence, it has to be aimed at the minds of the decision makers of your adversaries. That's number one. Number two, they have to believe that what you say is something you're willing to do. And finally, periodically, you're going to have to show evidence of that you're going to have to do things to to prove that you mean what you say. So what I recall about this is that strategic ambiguity applied to Taiwan and not across the board.
1: All right. So in in its uh, simplest form, it's almost like intermittent reinforcement, (laughs) Um, where, as you said, periodically you have to show your willingness to use some level of force and to create a belief in your adversaries that you're not only capable, but willing. Um, and of That's course... Absolutely right. Right. And of course, when the stakes are so high with nuclear weapons, uh, no one wants to suffer the results of one of the adversaries, or or us, using them. So uh, what response, our willingness, though, there had to be a belief that we had a willingness to use them.
2: Correct. And if you were ambiguous about what you said you would do, as we were in the case of the Korean Peninsula, the other side may decide, well, they're not serious about this, so it's okay if North Korea invades South Korea because the Americans aren't going to fight there. Well, that was a miscalculation on the part of the other side. And it was also a miscalculation on our part. Harry Truman understood that we could not police the world worldwide. He did not want to become the global policeman. So he tried to identify the limits of where our interests lay. And he did not include Korea. And you could argue, as many have, that that led the North Koreans to believe it was okay. And here we have been since 1950. Or fifty-three after the armistice, or, or uh, there was no treaty. Here we've been ever since. We're still in Korea. So I would argue that in Korea, at least, if you make a mistake about your intentions, you're going to wind up going to war. And if you do go to war and just, and you and, and you succeed to an extent to make your point, then deterrence has to be has to be shaped thereafter. So otherwise, the war doesn't end. In fact, technically, we're still at war in Korea.
1: All right. So, with the uh, enemies that we face today, do you think, and you've already said that you think deterrence still has a place today, but do you think for some of the, I'll call non-traditional enemies that we face today, that are willing at least superficially to accept risk, uh, that deterrence can still be as successful today as it has been in the past?
2: I, I think it's likely that deterrence can succeed with, with adversaries whose interest you can actually threaten. So in the case of Hamas or ISIS or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, or other you know, terrorist networks, they're, not, they're unlikely to be deterred by us. You know, what are the, what's at stake for them are individuals, which is why assassinating Soleimani of the uh, uh, Iranian Republican Guard uh, made sense. That did, that did cause unrest and unease in Iran because, you know, their personal livelihood, their personal safety is of value to them. I don't think the Ayatollahs are likely, not the Ayatollahs per se, but the Republican Guard or the Iranian Republican Guard and the uh, uh, terrorist organizations, of which I think the Iranians are, you know, the Iranian Republican Guard is one of those, are unlikely to be deterred. What deters the Houthis? Well, not bombing sites after you warn them to get out. I mean, you know, I recognize why we're doing what we're doing, but that's not likely to deter them. So you you may have to accept, in, in this instance, a low level of continued violence. Wait and see what happens if a missile gets through and badly damages the United States naval vessel.
1: Well, that's... I was going to bring that up in a minute here, but you said something, and maybe you can explain to Steve and I and Bob and our listeners. You said, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, and I don't.
2: (laughs) Well... The one thing you know I'm never going to do is offer criticism of the current leadership. Uh, What I would say, however, is that if you're concerned, if the ends that you seek cannot be attained by the ways and means that you have decided you're willing to use, then you're probably not going to achieve your ends. If you're not willing to take the battle to the Houthis because of the obvious necessity, if you do that, of killing civilians— then you're going to have a low level of violence throughout. I mean, we made a decision not to deter them. We're fending off blows. We're, we, we have done some attacks, but essentially they're warning people, hey, get out, we're coming. And That's unlikely to deter anyone, uh, in my opinion. But, but I think the administration's calculation is that, you know, we don't want to have this war spread. We don't want to kill civilians unnecessarily. And in their opinion, at the present time, it isn't necessary to do so. I will tell you, though, that the sight of a ship listing in the Red Sea, and we're operating ships in the Red Sea, which is, you know, Steve's a naval officer, not us, but that is, there's not a lot of sea room to maneuver in there. You know, these guys are going to be able to strike at you. It is conceivable to me that something could happen where we lose some sailors and maybe, maybe have a ship in trouble. And I think I think there will be a response far greater than the response you've seen up to now. We're batting the flies away right now and, and that's working so far. And I think that's why the administration's doing what it's doing. All right, Very can fine, we uh... the, the, the leadership of the United States has to operate within the political parameters that we have in the United States. And each of the two parties has their their own view of things but they also have voters to whom they must respond. And I I think that's what this administration is doing.
1: And you had mentioned earlier that politics used to stop at the shore. Uh, And obviously the need to accommodate or not tick off voters is affecting the our international, our strategic policies?
2: Yeah, well, what I said was partisanship stopped at the shore. If I said politics, I misspoke, because strategy is about politics. I mean, you know, old dead Carl von Clausewitz said it best, you know, war is politics by another means. So politics is always part of it. Uh, I think one of the problems that we have now is we've defined as the national interest, and I, I haven't got it right in front of me to read it. Uh, we've defined. All right,
1: here, have some music, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk uh, about how our leadership has articulated. Uh, their goals. So we'll be back with more Valor Radio in just a couple of minutes. Well,
0: I got that
1: on the WYSL stations,
0: ninety-two point one FM, ninety-five point five FM, West AM ten forty. More to come here on Valor Radio. Thanks for
3: listening.
0: From Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks, and from Canada to Pennsylvania, you're listening to Valor Radio. Valor Radio on the WISL stations is brought to you by A.M. Ginsburg & Associates, the law firm of Christopher Johnson, Taylor Heating & Air, call 500-HELP, Hidden Treasure Self Storage in Farmington, MGM Insurance, and the National Warplay Museum. And again, to the Colonel in FLA on Valor Radio. Go ahead.
1: Thanks, Robert. So, Greg, uh, something I neglected to mention up front before we uh, start talking about uh, the published U.S. strategy, I think uh, it's something I reiterate all the time on the show is about uh, our national strategy has much more to do than uh, with just what the military is capable of doing. Uh, I know... uh, back in, I don't know if it was Command and General Staff College or where it first was introduced uh, to me, but uh, you know, people used to talk about dime uh, as a, the elements of power that a nation has and how they have to be uh, all used in implementing strategy. Um, I don't know if you just wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about that.
2: Well... I think the way let's let's go back to what you and I and I, and Steve all learned in the staff colleges and/or the war college is that ends the national ends or interests as defined by the administration are going to include not only military ends but you know political financial you know if you look at the current national strategy it, it is all about uh, how to make. The United States as a country stronger. It's not just about the military, as you point out, but the ends have to be uh, commitment. The, the ways and means have to be consistent with the ends. You can't do things that are beyond your means. With a 300 ship navy, we are not going to have the presence globally that we once did. When you think about maintenance restrictions, and, you know. About one-third of the Navy is at sea, one-third is in maintenance, and one-third is prepared to go. That, that, that argument makes it really hard for what amounts to 100 ships to control the seven seas. Similarly, when you're down to 10 divisions, you know, technically we have 11, uh, there's, a, there's a 12th flag, but it's not a full division. You, you can't do what you could do with 18 divisions. So, once again, the president and the administration, along with the Congress, have to decide what is feasible, and in the case of the current national uh, security strategy, you know they've outlined uh, you know three big goals: investing in sources and tools of American power, build the strongest coalition of nations to enhance our collective influence, modernize and strengthen our military. Now you can argue over whether they're getting that done, but that's that's their goal so so to me your point uh, the point I think you made is that the national strategy is not a military strategy. There is a military strategy that supports the national strategy. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about national strategy. And when you bring this back into deterrence, the way it fits in is coalition. So when you have President, former President Trump saying, you know, NATO sucks, he, he, maybe he's saying that to encourage the NATO uh, partners to do what they're supposed to do in terms of spending 2% of GDP. But the flip side of that is, uh NATO is a valuable alliance to us, and it continues to be val- valuable, whether or not they're paying their 2%. Uh, by the way, they're putting more money into supporting Ukraine than we are. I don't know if that answers your question. It seems like I went all around it with maybe not answering it.
1: Well, all right. I just wanted to make sure that folks understand that uh, in addition to the military, we have many tools as a nation that we can use to either – Deter or motivate uh, other nations to act in certain manners, and whether we do it through diplomacy, through uh, economics, um, through the other elements of power that the nation has, that the military is just one piece of that. But uh, and I think we're we may get to talking a little bit about Iran. And I think that's a good case study on this. Um, but I I just wanted to make sure that folks are thinking that we're, there's more to it than uh, uh, ships and tanks and bombs. So uh, as, as we get into this discussion. Well, you
2: make a great point. And one of the things we haven't talked about is one of the tools that you can use to – it's not a deterrent tool. It's a tool for shaping behavior or sanctions. And we have used those effectively in the past. Uh, So yes, the strategy is far broader than military. And the three of us are probably competent to talk about part of the military thing, but not competent to talk about the broader part of it.
1: So, uh, in, in moving the discussion forward, um, you, you had mentioned what our three key objectives were in the national strategy. Um, it seems as though they raise the issue that China, Russia are our two biggest issues that we have to deal with, and really China is the only uh, nation that the state has some sort of parity uh, and being able to challenge us. Do you agree with that?
2: Yes, uh, I do. Uh, the, the axis, if you like, you know, China Soviet Union axis, is uh, certainly inconvenient for us. It, it, at the same time, it, it illustrates the weakness of both of those powers. I mean, we are, uh, we are rightly focused on uh, China and Russia. Russia is the immediate danger short term, and then China longer term. And then in the background you have the DPRK, Iran, various terrorist organizations. I mean it's a dangerous world. It's it's actually more dangerous now, I think, in many ways than it was during the you know, the, the Cold War. So yeah, I think you're right about that.
1: Can we uh just spend a few minutes talking about Iran? We uh they're listed it in the strategy as as a big issue for us um, but sometime I'm not sure after reading the strategy that our actions are in line with what we uh, say we're going to do with iran and i I struggle with um, the lack of enforcement of sanctions um, and yeah. other uh, overtures uh, that we've made with Iran in attempting, uh, I guess, to bring them into the the fold. Um, and I know you don't like to comment on current administration, but maybe comparing it to how... The last administration dealt with it, and maybe give us some thoughts on that.
2: Well, what I'd rather do than comment either on uh, the Trump administration or on the Biden administration is look at this thing in, in the context of our relations with Iran You know, since the 1979 revolution. Uh, if you were to go back and think through what happened during the tanker war, uh, do you guys remember the tanker war, either of you?
3: You do. I sure do. The Operation Ernest Will.
2: Yes, and you were probably aboard a, a ship doing Ernest Will, but Ernest Will is at the end of the tanker war. The tanker war really began in 1984, mm-hmm. and there were a series of attacks beginning in 1984 on on tankers, uh, mostly I mean, no U.S. flag tankers, but uh, tankers hauling oil. Right, and and that went on right up until Ernest Will. What happened, Steve? There, in Ernest Will. What do we do?
3: Well, I remember um, I was talking to, uh, during the break uh, with Bob about uh, about the EXO set missile that struck, uh, and I can't remember the ship that it hit, but um, Stark,
0: USS
2: the sh- Stark.
3: the what, the, what was the, the missile,
2: ship? the missile struck the USS
3: Stark. Stark, Steve. there it is. Yep, yeah. and uh, and then and then we had uh, later on we had uh, Samuel B. Roberts hit a mine. Right so uh, it was a dangerous time for the navy in that neck of the woods um and yes. I, I i agree i agree that um it, it was a question of deterrence it, it, i mean everybody thinks that you know ronald reagan was a terrific uh, president uh as far as establishing our credibility but even ronald reagan had misgivings about uh, how to how to uh, stage or pose a credible deterrent to iran because they just they didn't seem to get the, the memo during that period. I mean, nothing we did seemed to deter Iran from going after our people. Remember, we had Colonel Higgins get, get got, got hung uh, in. Uh, m- remember that whole deal with uh, you know with the Palestinians, and and then we had uh, you know uh, uh, Iranian-backed groups were were constantly supporting terrorist groups that were uh, targeting U.S. assets.
2: Absolutely, I'll tell you what they did understand is one afternoon we sunk the bulk of their navy and the tanker attack stopped
3: oh and and the tanker attack stopped that was like like, around 87
2: 87 or so so uh, no it was actually 88 88 yeah the
3: early but
2: the point is these guys weren't going to be deterred merely by us saying don't do this right they got deterred when it really cost them something and 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 here's another ironic point. You made the point about Reagan. Just because you're Reagan doesn't mean you don't have trouble with these guys. What doctrine were we enforcing, in fact, was the Carter Doctrine? President Carter, in 1979, I think it was, articulated what was called the Carter Doctrine. It says, supply of oil back and forth through the Straits of Hormuz and the Red Sea for the benefit of the world is so important that we're going to fight over it. And not only did Reagan endorse that, but after subsequently George Herbert Walker Bush. So there's more, there was more consistency then. So now we have the problem in the Red Sea. Who do the Houthis respond to? They respond to the Iranians. In a way, this is a similar situation. Now, uh, the administration uh, certainly merits uh, some of the disagreement that they get, but if you look at what happened recently, uh, you know, we had all these attacks inside uh, Syria, Tower 22, all these kind of things going on. And they found uh, the guy that was running the show, and they killed him. Uh, hadn't been an attack there lately. So what happens with the Houthis remains to be seen, but we do know that we're, we're punishing them. Now, if deterrence the fails, then the only way you can get back to stasis is to have some kind of response by sanction by diplomacy, by coalition, or by active force, and hurt them where it counts. Mm -hmm. That's my my story, and I'm sticking to it, Paul. All
1: right. (laughs) Well, so I'm starting to get a sense that while things change, some things always stay the same.
0: Usually one of the things that stays the same is uh, commercials on the radio, but because of the import of this conversation, we're going to blow off the break here, Colonel, and just uh, let's continue right along to the end of the show with, right. uh, without interruption. Proceed, hey, please. Hey.
3: Paul, did you uh, did you happen to uh, see 60 Minutes recently? They, uh, they had um, uh, Vice Admiral Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Great name, huh? The yeah. Deputy U.S. Central Command told 60 Minutes that the Red Sea conflict was uh, ongoing which was ongoing as the most extensive naval operation the U.S. has faced since World War II. Says, uh, sub-
2: I don't understand the logic of that argument. There are yeah. 7,000 sailors. 7,000. And 5,000 of them are on an aircraft carrier, so I don't know how that's any bigger than, say, Desert Storm. I, had the New I totally agree shell. with you.
3: Yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, it's PR, but um, he says uh, they, they focus on the fact that the U.S. has been disrupting Iranian logistical chain to the rebels. Okay. And they they forced, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, you know, we're we're trying to safeguard shipping in the region, but uh, uh, you know, uh, intercepting a few illegal weapon shipments uh, doesn't uh, doesn't end the you know the, the the conflict, and we're still doing it, and we're going to be doing it for a long time at this rate, I think.
2: I think you're right, Steve, and and I don't know that that's wrong. I mean, one of the problems that the administration has to cope with is. We have a war in Europe, a no-kidding war in Europe, that could expand. Uh, periodically, you know, the dictator called Putin threatens right. to expand it. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to at least listen to them. You don't have to take them seriously, right. but I think I'd take him seriously. I, I think so, too. You have the Chinese playing games literally everywhere, digging up lithium in Africa, using... Right. ...that they're not paying fair wages to. There's There's so much going on that the problem is managing the strategic outcome... You, you really need clarity in, in, in what the end state's supposed to be. And the problem that the president has, as well as his crit- critics have, is that this is an election year. Right. It, says, well, wait a minute. You know, that that should. Yes, it will. It's be, that It has to. That's, that's how the world works. So what what the administration is trying to do is thread a needle. Now, you and I may argue about whether the eye of the needle is in the right place or not, or if it's the right needle, or are they using the right thread, but that's what they're
3: trying well, to do. Well, my problem with, that, with the, you know, rattling sabers in the Red Sea is, is one thing, but w- we just don't have the force that we used to have. I mean, back in the day, you know, when I, when I first got in the Navy, we had enough Navy that we could cover the bases in the Red Sea without much difficulty. It's going to be a, a hardship for us to do that now. We don't have the... The ships to do it, or the personnel.
2: No, you don't. And and one of the problems you have is it's not going to get better anytime soon. No. And one of the reasons it's, it's not, not going to get better was if you. Uh, I listened to the uh, Congressional Budget Office director for a few minutes this today, and uh, ten years from now we'll be paying more in interest payments on the national debt than mm. on the current defense budget. So. We have a real problem, and if, if the other thing you got to look at is in, I think it was 1992, uh, and I look this up every year, and I, I didn't look it up just now, that, so I can I may have this wrong. But in 92, the discretionary part of the budget went below 50%. That is, put another way, the non-discretionary wow. part of the budget, interest payments, welfare, retirement, all yeah. those kinds of things, benefits that we pay for, mm-hmm. went above 50%. And it's gone up every year since. Right. As a consequence, the defense budget as a share of GDP has to go down. So we're at under 3% GDP right now. In in the Cold War, when you're talking about, Steve, we were right around 6%. All
3: right.
2: So 3% of a huge GDP buys a lot of stuff. But we need to start thinking about, are we buying the right stuff? What about the literal combat ship? We're we not. Have, we're, we are
3: not buying the right stuff. So that's a perfect example of we're, it. We're
2: by the little combat should oh, be God. a great example. Uh, do you know we could ask questions about a $25,000 sight system on the rifle that allegedly cost $25,000 to replace the, to put the sight system on the new rifle for the infantry. Do you really need a $25,000 sight system on a rifle?
3: Well, Greg, I Unless mean... The
2: Kalashnikov AK-47 doesn't have one, and it does okay.
3: I, I, I've been hearing reports uh, the last couple of weeks that uh, the Navy is starting to embrace the, uh, the literal combat ship again. And I don't understand it because, they, I mean, when they first came out, this is 2008, they came out with USS Freedom. They're cheap, fast, flexible, you know, easy to build, modular design, the whole nine yards. Uh, it was a Danish Navy design. That, that Vern Clark uh, embraced. But um, first problem was the engines. Apparently, they had, I mean, they, they have problems when they get up to a certain sea state and a, a certain speed, and then they just they had classic examples of, of, of ships crapping out in the middle of the ocean. And then the second problem was structural defects, hull cracks. I mean, that's a that's a pretty s- serious thing. Yeah, all
2: crackles sink a shit Well, uh, yeah. The, the Navy isn't the only one that has problems. I mean, all of the services have some issues with their acquisition systems. But, but the, we, the, we have too yeah. few shipyards to build the ships that right. we need to start with. We have uh, how many aircraft companies are competing for defense contracts now? Two? Yeah. So, you know,
3: are you getting the
1: best? <laughs> Is that buy? it?
2: We're off. We're kind of moving away from deterrence, <laughs> but you can't deter if you don't have the weapons systems right. that are necessary to no, deter. you're them. absolutely right. And you can't deter everywhere. One of the things we have to accept is we have some limits to what we can do, and we need to figure out what those are. Our problem is we created the world order that prevailed for the better part of the last eighty years, seventy years at least, and now we're we're confronted with. Challenges to that world order, we we found surprising. We did not expect anybody to challenge us. At the end of the Cold War, remember, we tried to bring the Chinese and the Russians in, Group of Eight, Group of 20, all of that. If we bring them into the tent, they're going to learn how to behave. They did not, to use your phrase, Steve, they didn't get the memo.
3: Well, you know, um, I want to mention this to you. I just just read the other day where um, the U.S. is uh, uh, poised to deploy five carriers to the Western Pacific. Five carrier battle groups. That's nearly half of of our carrier force. We have, I think, we have eleven. So eleven, maybe at the most. I think
2: it's twelve with thirteen air groups, but I may be wrong. Okay,
3: uh, but but they're saying th- three carriers are already there. I don't remember ever having, you know, more than three carriers anywhere. I mean, I, any any part of the world at one time. I when you I was in the
2: sustain them out there for yeah, that period. Yeah, that's of time.
3: a that's a difficult part of it too.
2: It's it's part of the problem that we have. To now, we have global threats, and right. there, are, the there are very few uh, Western powers that have the ability to project power. We have it. The Australians have it to a limited means in the region. Uh, you know, they could project power in East Timor into Guadalcanal, and Guadalcanal, and and don't underplay the value <laughs> of that. Uh, the French have a legitimate aircraft carrier. The Brits ever stored? Uh, I think it's two aircraft carriers. So, you know, we have some some capability, but our problem is the capability or the capacity that we have is not equal to the to the challenge, and that has to be fixed. Right. And that has to be fixed by, guess who, the U.S. Congress.
3: Oh, boy.
1: So, <laughs> uh, Greg, I, I want to – I know we got a little bit away from deterrence, but in addition to acquisition, we're having a – acquisition difficulty in another area, and just you've been around for a long time now. I'm not going to date you, but you've been around long, and you've seen a lot of cycles. Um, What do you think about issues that are surrounding uh, trying to get people to join the military now? That's one part. And the other thing, and Steve and I don't have any hard numbers on this, but, or maybe it's just being reported more often, but it seems like commanders at 05 and 06 level are being relieved wholesale uh, at a rate that I don't think we've seen since uh, World War II. Well, that's, that
2: seems like more than one question to me, but.
1: Uh... It's two. As an
2: aside, before I answer, get to that... Uh,
0: gentlemen, just so you know, two minutes left in the show. Just so okay. You
2: know. uh, there are 11 carriers on active duty now okay. so with a 12th fitting out, Steve. Okay. Um, the problem with enlistment, uh, and, and this will border on political, which I don't like doing, as you know, but the problem with, with recruiting soldiers is if you have a system in which the country is denigrated and the, uh, the, the, the the idea of America is denigrated as being somehow irredeemable in some cases or de- needing vast improvement in another, then why would anybody enlist to uh, defend it? And where that's really showing right now is the demographic they're having the most problem enlisting at the present time is, is uh, young white men. And uh, that's bad news because it, for the time being, at least, they're still a majority uh, and will be a plurality for a very long time to come. So we, we need young white guys to enlist. We also need, I believe, to, uh, in, in our recruiting advertising and in the country generally, uh, get beyond the business of everything about the country needs to be fixed. Somehow, it's take a knee makes more sense than... than uh, putting your hand over your chest during the national anthem uh i have a real problem with all that I'm just it's not a flag waiver but i think if you tell kids the country's not worth defending they're going to believe you over after a while
1: all right well we've used up the entire hour greg thanks so much when we see you again uh, we'll be reviewing talking about your book your most recent book no sacrifice too great thank you uh, let's I keep our soldiers, sailors, boots. airmen, marines, coasters, guardians in your thoughts money. and in your prayers. Have a There's great week. God bless, I and we'll paid. see you next week on Valerie. I don't do it for the glory. I just do it anyway. Providing for our futures my responsibility. Yeah, I'm real good on the pressure.